Hello, time hackers, and welcome to the Taking Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Jacques Fu, and on our podcast, we like to talk about time, time hacking, tips and strategies, and we also hear from people who have unique and interesting perspectives about time through their personal life experiences. Today, I have a very special guest who has helped me both personally and professionally. Dr. Laura Gallagher has worked in the field of professional and personal development since 2005. She is an organizational psychologist, speaker, facilitator, and executive coach. She's the founder and CEO of Gallagher Edge and holds a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's and PhD in organizational psychology. She's also the host of her own podcast that I listen to called The Evolved Leader. You should all check that out. Her noteworthy career began after the Space Shuttle Columbia exploded upon re-entry in 2003, killing everyone on board. Following the tragedy, NASA had hired Laura and a team of organizational psychologists to change the cultural influence that were deemed to play a role in the accident. I don't want to give away too much, so Laura, I would love if you kind of told us your perspective of that journey and, you know, tell us how you got to where you are today. And thank you for coming to be a guest on the show. We're very honored. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's so fun to be here doing this with you. So, yeah. Okay. So you want me to begin with the, the Columbia story? Or just, yeah, just your story. What, however you think of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was definitely, you know, incredibly pivotal for me. So I didn't even know the details, the technical details, and I won't go into those too deeply, but in the final launch of Columbia, there was a piece of foam that, that fell off of the external tank and it struck the orbiter and they weren't totally sure where it hit. They had some idea, but it was so far into the launch that the cameras just couldn't quite capture things too precisely. And so as a result, the data suggested that it could be anywhere from completely acceptable to catastrophe. And in the absence of knowing for sure, they were really relying on their ability to effectively communicate internally and and make some effective decisions. And unfortunately, a, a whole series of decisions were made where they decided that it wasn't something to pay attention to. And as a result, we, we lost all seven astronauts on board. And so what they found in the investigation was that culture was as much to blame for the accident as the piece of foam itself, which was particularly shocking because only a couple months before the accident, NASA was rated the number one place to work in the federal government. Hmm. And so, you know, most people, at least, I don't know, when I hear that culture's to blame, I, I picture a really problematic company. I picture like toxicity and overbearing managers and just people who are disengaged and don't like their jobs, but that wasn't the case. And so it really raised a, a critical question about culture and, you know, what were some of the factors and the forces that are unseen that were actually contributing to the series of decisions that led to tragedy? And, you know, what was your approach with it? I mean, obviously, my understanding was that time was an element, time pressure was an element in some of that culture. How did, how were you able to sort of unpack and help them address things that needed to be changed? Yeah, well, so, I mean, I certainly don't want to take credit for any of the investigation because that was all done before I had the opportunity to go work for NASA. But one of the big contributors that they found was schedule pressure. And, you know, most people think about when they first hear Columbia, a lot of people actually jump to the Challenger accident that happened in the 80s. That, that's one that stands out more in the minds of a lot of Americans because more people were watching live when that happened. That was the shuttle that exploded during the launch. And that for sure 
that had a huge, I mean, schedule pressure. Like that was almost the whole thing. There was so much pressure from, from the government and from the public and the media. Anytime NASA had scrubbed that launch and delayed it, they got so much flack. And there was always this concern that the shuttle program would get canceled, you know? So, so in the eighties, it was definitely scheduled pressure that, that led them to push them to make what ended up being really, really poor decisions to sacrifice safety. They said, you know, we could, this is back in Challenger. They said, you know, we can wait, we can wait until the temperatures outside are within the scope of what we know is safe. But there was so much time pressure. They're like, you have to go now, you have to go now. And so they ended up saying, well, it might be okay. When in reality, people were terrified that it wasn't, and unfortunately it wasn't. And so with Columbia, the schedule pressure wasn't quite as obvious, but it was in the investigation board report. They actually did talk about schedule pressure. So at this point in time, you know, we're 30, well, no, let's see, 20 plus years into the shuttle program. And there was just constant talk about, is the shuttle program going to be canceled? Constantly. And there was this pressure for Core Complete, which was about the space station. So at this point in time, the International Space Station was still being built. There were literally screensavers with countdowns on them on people's computers across NASA of like, this is when we must finish the International Space Station. And there's a quote from an employee who I'm pretty sure stayed anonymous in the investigation board report. And he said, you know, you want to think that these schedule pressures don't play a role, but subconsciously, you know, they do something like that. And so, you know, unfortunately, time did play a really big role. So much, so much pressure around time that it ended up meaning that they were sacrificing safety and the engineering and technical components, what was really going on. And, and, and how do you think that they would look at time differently now? Well, so time in this case was really linked to being able to save the program. And that was even one of the, the mantras that was spoken around the Space Center. And so one of the earliest things that, that was implemented um, at Kennedy Space Center was <laughs> almost a, like a strict rule, I guess, around that whole idea of save the program. So if anybody said that or anything that resembled that, the culture shift was like, okay, we're actually going to pause. We're going to completely stop the conversation, whatever's happening, and we're going to talk about this exact idea. And so it became like a really, really strong shift where anytime somebody had that mentality of, of schedule pressure and time pressure and like save the program, the conversation came back to how we're literally talking about life and death. And hey, let's be aware that when we're over pressuring ourselves with time and schedule that we can make very, very poor decisions without realizing it. So it's really about focusing on increasing the self-awareness for people because you, you have to know, and I know that you know this because we've talked about this before, but for your listeners, like there's not a single person at NASA that would have knowingly said like, well, yeah, they might not survive, but schedule, schedule, like that's not how it works, right? Like the time pressure in this case was such a subconscious influence. And so that was one of the first, and I would say biggest attempts to really shift the culture and to, to shift how people thought about time pressure. You know, I think it's super interesting that you have such a long time horizon. I mean, some of these missions are years in the making, right? And then you have this specific, you know, uh, a day or month that, that you want to get launched. Um, but then also you have the weather to contend with. And then there's probably a routine, right? Like once you target a specific time, all of the different team members have to have their parts that they have to play and 
you know, everyone's got to execute, you know, on the minute or, you know, thing, things are going to get delayed. And then at what point, at what point do you just sort of, you know, scrub the launch and say, let's just do this another day. Like that's got to be a really tough call to make. So yeah. I can imagine in some ways you know, almost everything that they do is centered around time, even these conversations as you're talking about. But like, that's interesting to me too, because being safety first, let's say, mm-hmm. and, and, and making sure that we're, we're taking care of the, the lives of, of the astronauts. It's like, at what point is, have we spent enough time to say that that's safe? Like, is there right. like, there's no real hard cutoff. Like it's everyone sort of subjective judgment there's always some percentage of danger how much time do you spend to say that that percentage is low enough that it's acceptable i mean people even say like safety first is a joke like it's not safety first i mean when the shuttle program was going on and i wish i had the stats in front of me i used to be able to rattle this off but like you've got seven human beings with a bomb underneath them like to (laughs) shoot them up into space like this is not safety first it's it's not it's really not (laughs) But, you know, one other thing that I wanted to point out, because in this case, it it didn't actually have anything to do with like the timing of the launch, right? That was very much the case with Challenger. But one of the things that's important too, when it comes to time and time pressure, because there was so much um, conversation and pressure about this core complete finishing International Space Station, it really shifted the focus of the mission management team. So, I mean, you're aware of a lot of these like cognitive biases and these decision-making biases and filters that we have. So whatever it is that we are sort of holding most dear, that might be the primary thing that we focus on. So for example, so the foam, and I'll just, I'll keep this part quick. The foam had been falling off of the external tank and hitting the orbiter for years. It had been happening a lot. It's part of the reason why this tragedy happened, but it always hit a part of the orbiter where it was able to survive re-entry and it was just an impact on the processing of that orbiter for the next launch. So it had actually been deemed something that they weren't even supposed to have to worry about while it was in flight. Now, a lot of engineers were worried about it. And when they actually brought it up in one of these mission management meetings and they said, hey, you know, so we're looking into this, you know, we've got some data that we're running, we're trying to gauge like how badly it's damaged. The primary leader in this case, the mission manager, shut it down. She shut it down and she said, like, well, you know, there's not much we can do about it while it's in flight, so it's just not an issue for us. And her primary focus, her questions were all around, what do we know about how this is going to impact upcoming launch schedules? Right? And so, like, her mindset wasn't even on, like, do we want to take the time to figure out, is this a risk to the astronauts now? And in her defense, a whole different committee, a whole board had decided foam hitting the orbiter is not an in-flight issue. So she could have overridden that, but she deferred to that previous decision, despite the fears the, engin- the engineers had. But it just wasn't even her focus. She was so focused on schedule that when she heard about the foam hitting, it wasn't like, hey, is this dangerous for the astronauts? Her focus went to, what is the impact going to be on the rest of the schedule for the rest of the launches before we're complete? So I think it's really useful to to pay attention to that too. You know, how is time affecting you? What is the filter through which you're looking at any kind of decision that you're making for yourself? Yeah, indir- indirectly, I mean, I talk about this, something similar on the show all the time, which is, you know, your life is really just how you choose to spend your time. It, you know, at the end of the day, you're not going to get 
credit for the number of things that you do on time. You just, <laughs> you're, you're going to be, you know, happy and fulfilled with the, the decision that you make and the choices of where you want to spend your time. I think at the end of the day, it's, it's what is, what does that time mean to you? So yeah. it's, it's a very interesting, you know, philosophical question as well. I think this is extremely intriguing, but I also want to know how did you decide that this was the the path and career for for yourself at some point you decided that you wanted to, to get a get a degree in it but also you chose to continue to to build a uh, a very successful uh, business and career around this and, and, and impact a lot of you know a large organizations and do a lot of great work so I'm just curious as to was what was the sort of impetus for you to decide that this is how you wanted to to spend your time Psychology was fascinating to me since high school, and I didn't get to formally study it in high school, so I was very quick to declare a major when I went into college, and I kind of thought that I would do counseling or something more stereotypical, and then I fell in love with social psychology. Like, what happens when you get people together, you get people in groups, you know, how are they judging each other? How does, you know, what influences how we perceive one another? What influences our interactions? And I wasn't totally sure what to do with a social psych degree. So somebody <laughs> said, you know, there's this whole field of industrial organizational psychology where you can basically study anything you want as long as you say at work at the end of it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. And so I ended up applying for PhD programs um, across the country in IO psych, industrial organizational psych. And I, I came here to University of Central Florida and the NASA opportunity kind of fell in my lap, actually. Because I was, you know, at that point, only about 45 minutes away from the Kennedy Space Center. And they were at the point where they were looking to bring in a team of us. So I got the chance to come in and specifically focus then on organizational culture, which is, is still what we focus on today. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about the, uh, your business and, and kind of what Gallagher Edge does for organizations and, and, your, and the clients that you have? Yeah, we apply the science of human behavior to organizations. And, and what that means is we really focus on helping leaders align their cultures from the inside out. So the work that we did at NASA had a really big influence on how we see culture and, and how many things actually influence culture. You know, I, there's so many leaders who are well-intentioned who think that culture is about having like a ping pong table and, you know, let's have a potluck and, and, you know, that stuff can be important and valuable. We do have and a ping pong table. <laughs> I, you know what? I personally have a ping pong table, so I love it. And it's useful to know, like you were saying earlier, Jacques, about like time and meaning, like, what does it mean? If we have a ping pong table in, in our offices, what does that mean to us? What does that represent? And is the leadership team on the same page about it? You know, I worked with one organization where the leadership team was most definitely not on the same page about different artifacts that they had throughout. Like, they just kind of did it because they're like, oh, this is cool, right? Like, tech companies do this. But because they weren't fully aligned on what it meant, it's like, if I see people playing ping pong, am I going to glare at them because they're not doing work? Like, how does that translate then to cultural impact? So, you know, we help leaders understand what culture really is and how it's always, always, always from the inside out. So as you know, we, we do a lot of work with leaders to help them become more self-aware, better understand their own behaviors, essentially so they can feel like they're more in control of themselves. They can regulate their emotions more effectively. They can get more in touch with their own values as they're making their own decisions. And, and really, we like to help them do that in the context of what are we creating here when we talk about the culture at this particular company? 
you know, and, and just for the audience to, to, to know that, you know, we have worked together and I find, I found your guidance to be immensely helpful, you know, again, both, both in, in, at work and, and in my personal life. Um, I, you know, I, I want to make a statement and, and let me know if this sounds true, but I, I feel like as you approach that inside out model and you help people align their, you know, the, the, the company culture with their values, I assume this changes you know, how they spend their time. Would you, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we certainly want it to. I think it's one of those things that if you're not intentional, everything can just get away from you. So paying attention to how time is spent and and what are the experiences that you're ultimately creating for the, the employees, when you can bring that into alignment, not only with the company's core values, but also with the organization's strategy, it actually ends up being a huge time saver. Like anybody who's ever worked in any organization knows how much time ends up getting wasted because people are working at cross purposes or time is wasted because you've got somebody there that's not a strong culture fit or they're not a strong culture ad. They're detracting from the culture and they're actually like spinning up other people and then they're wasting time complaining and venting. And and so, yeah, like paying attention to genuinely aligning culture from the inside out has a huge impact on how time is spent and being able to save time. Yeah. And I, you know, we, we speak about it in a personal context on the show, but I can see how that makes perfect sense at work as well. Right. Like a lot of communication, if it's, if it's not direct things that, things that, you know, you and I have spoken of, you can just, you can simply not be communicating the right information. It can be completely lost and, and then that can cause, you know, things to, to be delayed or have to be, you know, reworked or completely, completely thrown away if, if the, you know, if the whole thing has to be scrapped. So yeah. Um, well, and from a from a personal perspective, you know, you're obviously Jacques familiar with the the Greenland openness concept that we talk about, which is really encouraging people to become more self aware and then be self disclosing. So there's an element of vulnerability in this a lot. But oh my gosh, we waste so much time as individuals getting stuck in our head, thinking about things and worrying about things, and and you know trying to plan out conversations and maybe trying to control a situation instead of just being open about like, hey, I'm noticing this or I have this fear. Hey, I'm looking to create this solution for myself. Is that what you also want? And so we talk about openness as the grand simplifier because it simplifies problem solving and it ends up saving time in a huge way. (laughs) Like for anybody listening, just imagine how much time you would save if you didn't like let your mind get all wrapped up in strategizing about how to have conversations or when your mind gets all occupied with rehashing a conversation that's already happened and like you keep thinking about it and you're obsessing about it and then you start to wonder, well, how am I going to handle this next time? And you're just like, ah, like there's so much time and energy that goes into that and ends up not being the most effective. So one of the core concepts that we, we focus on in organizations is extremely applicable on an individual level and a personal level. I think just about every client we've ever had says that they use our tools in their personal lives just as often as they do professionally. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, when it boils down to relationships, right, and and wanting to say something that, you know, request something from another person, right? Because that's generally, that's often where, you know, pe- people don't request things or they don't yes. request exactly what they want yeah. because you're you're worried about, well, how is this person going to take it? Will they like that? Will they not like that? And you know, sometimes you can, it's, it's as simple as just stating, well, this is, this is something I would like if you're willing to provide it. But if, if they don't know, then they don't have that opportunity to do it. So it's just whatever, whatever thing that you need to get accomplished is, 
is is sits on ice until until that happens. So yeah, and and that, and that doesn't matter. Yeah, personal or at work. Yeah, huge time savers. And like maybe you know people don't even know what they want, and so <laughs> they're wasting that time and energy just sort of like this is so frustrating. You know, why doesn't this person like why do they do it this way? Or I don't like that. It's like, well, what do you want from them? And yeah, just make the request. If you can be flexible about it, then requests become a lot less scary. Maybe that would be a uh, great, great for the audience. If you had, you know, maybe some time saving tips, like how do you learn to, to ask for things or what are, what are other things that people can do to sort of make their communication more efficient and more effective when they're, you know, either the, either at home or at work. Any, any uh, tips that you think, you know, the, the audience can walk away with? Well, let's build on the request thing there and, and I'll, I'll share Frick as that model. So the R is request, which that's like the meat of it. You know, what do you really want? And be specific and be affirmative. Ask for what you do want, not what you don't want. Don't spend a lot of time going, well, I don't really like this or I don't want that. Like you can actually cut out a whole lot of preamble from your requests. But there is that F in Frick before, and that's about the fear or the feeling. And, and the reason that we include this uh, as a, a piece of this model for communication is because when people are holding back from making a request or you have any of that like rumination going on in your head, it's useful for you to figure out like, what's the emotion that I have going on here? And do I have a fear in actually making this request? Well, guess what? You can actually be open about that too. And it's a vulnerable way to start the conversation. You just get to put it out there. So you can start with the fear of the feeling and then you make your request. And then the inquiry, you know, this can help a lot of people get over their fear of making a request because the inquiry is like, hey, what do you want from me? You know, like I, I want to contribute to this solution too. So is there anything that I can do for you that would make it easier for you to honor my request? Like it's this whole co-creation idea instead of me feeling like I'm telling somebody else what to do or telling somebody else that they're bad or stupid or lazy or, you know, any of those things. And then you have that conversation and, and you keep it going until you get to a commitment. This is a big time saver. Some people will have the conversation and then they skip over the whole like committing to actually doing anything. And then a week later, they're like, oh my God, like they're still doing it. It's like, well, did anybody make a commitment to do anything differently? And so it can feel tedious and hard sometimes in the moment to actually get to the point where one or both people are making a commitment, but it saves so much time in the long run when people actually make a commitment. Like you might make a commitment, Jacques, and I hear you say it and I'm like, ooh, oh, you know what? That's actually not exactly what I'm asking for. Can we back it up a bit? And how much time does it save for us to catch that now in this moment versus it happening like a week later after I'm all annoyed and cranky because what the heck? We talked about this. Like, why isn't it changing? So take the time in that first conversation, if you can get there, to get to a commitment. Get to a commitment. That'll definitely save time. What, what, would, what would that sound like? Can we walk through an example, a quick, a quick one? Yeah. So like... And this is a work example, as you know, most of my examples are, you know, organizational. So let's say that I have a coworker who like has a pattern or a habit of asking me a question in a team meeting in front of a whole bunch of people when I don't have, I don't have the answer. And maybe I feel a little bit tired of being sort of put on the spot um, because I feel like I regularly don't know. And so I can express the fear, the feeling like, hey, I noticed that I feel embarrassed when week after week you're, you're throwing some questions at me that I'm not prepared to answer. My request would be, could you and I tag up maybe like the morning before those meetings so that 
I can actually be prepared and I can come to the meeting for the whole team with the benefit of that information. And so that would be, you know, that fear, that would be the request. And then I get to find out, is that person okay with it? And maybe they're like, well, I don't know. It doesn't occur to me until I'm in the moment. And so we go back and forth with requests and we, we figure it out until we can get to commitment. And then maybe it'll be like, okay, how about this? I commit to letting you know what questions I want to ask as long as I get like a pre-copy of the report. And then I'll have a sense of what questions might come to mind. I say, okay, well, I can commit to get you a pre-report like the afternoon before the meeting. Does that work? Yep, that works. So something like that. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And as, as you were going through it, I was even thinking of, you know, the, a recent example, you know, with, with my wife and, you know, I would sometimes, you know, when she wants things done a certain way, she'll, she'll, you know, explain explicitly, like this, these are the, this is the exact way that you do it. And if, if I get it wrong, you know, obviously I'll be told that I get it wrong. And I always want to know why, but I'm, I'm afraid to sort of ask. So, mm. you know, I, I think I, I did something similar was like, look, I don't, this is not because I'm questioning that your method isn't correct for this. I really, I would, I would like to know if it's okay for me to ask you why you do it that way. Just so I know, I feel like I will, I will learn better. I'll retain the information better. And then we sort of make the commitment like, sure, you can ask. I won't get upset if you ask. And awesome. so, That's yeah, a great so example. I think, yeah, so I think it works definitely just, just as well in, in personal life as well. Yeah. So, well, you know. I know we're coming up on time here, but I do know that you have a new book that you that you just uh, launched recently here. I do. And I'd love for you to kind of share why you decided to write it and uh, and where where people can can get it. So it's called The Missing Links: Launching a High Performing Company Culture. And we wrote this book because a couple of years ago, you know, we took about gosh, maybe thirty plus combined years of experience in working on organizational culture, and we created a culture model. It's called the Missing Links Culture Model because we talk about helping companies evolve their culture. And so in the book, we, we share a lot of the story from the Columbia accident, but most of the book is actually about how can you as a leader better understand organizational culture? Like, what does that mean? What are the things that you can actually do to influence and create the culture that you want and so that's what prompted us to do it is that we, we have this culture model that we think takes a really complex idea of, of organizational culture and breaks it down in a way that anybody who is not a culture geek like me and is not a scientist can understand it and actually apply it. Well, I think we should all be culture geeks. We, we'd all be a lot better for it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We're, we're supremely honored to, to, to have you on the show. And I will put a link to the, to the book in the show notes, a uh, link to your podcast as well. I think all of you, all the listeners out there should, should check, check that out. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience or a ways that they can get in touch with you um, if they'd like to learn more? Yeah, I'll just, I'll say one other thing about the book. We, we had so much content on the cutting room floor. <laughs> like so much, we had so much we wanted to say. And so one of the things that we did with the book is we have these QR codes throughout the book where you can just use your phone or whatever. And it takes you to a website where we have all this supplemental content. So even things like Green Lane Openness and Frick that I was just talking through, like we've got these videos and they're five minute videos because micro learning is hugely important for people who are extremely busy. You know, you want a time hack. 
five minutes a week on this kind of stuff and you will have the kind of incremental growth. And so the book has a link where people can get like three free months on, on the membership site and they can learn a lot of these things. And so we really wanted it to be a combination of not just reading, but also a chance for some video and also some personal assessments. So hopefully some of your listeners awesome. will be interested in that as well. That is very cool. I, I love interactive stuff, stuff like that, bridging physical and the digital mediums. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, let's make this real. Like, okay, that was a, you know, a page in a book, but what do I do with it? And that's what the site's for. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, I'll definitely uh, make sure that all of those, uh, those things get added to the show notes. And thank you again for coming on the show. It's a lot of fun. I feel, always feel like I'm just having a chat with my, my friend, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you like the show and would like others to hear about it, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the number one way other listeners find the show. Thank you for listening. And remember, life is how you choose to spend your time. Please use it wisely. <laughs>